0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Good afternoon, Austin. We're live. Chuck Morse, co
2: host of Fairness Radio with Chuck Morse and Dr. Patrick O'Heaven. Patrick, of course, my co-host, is on his way to uh, the Netroots Nation Convention here in Providence, Rhode Island, which is pretty near me. I'm in Boston. Um, I shall be winging my way down there tomorrow. It's about an hour's drive from Boston, and uh, we'll have the opportunity to meet Patrick and perhaps some of our other friends from this program, including Dave Johnson, get to hear uh, what the left is talking about, attend a few seminars. I'm looking forward to one in particular, which is how to answer the right should be interesting uh, on Friday, we'll be doing the program live from NetRoots Nation tomorrow. I will be flying solo then as well, but hopefully we'll have uh, various guests on uh, live at Netroots Nation. On Friday, Patrick and I will co-host live from NetRoots Nation. So it should be an interesting excursion in um, certainly in technical matters, but hopefully an intellectual talk which is what Patrick and I like to do, or like to think we do. Uh, this afternoon, I believe, in the first hour, I am hoping. And by the way, bear with me uh, when it comes to technical matters. I tend to be fairly ham-handed, and I may not uh, get it right, but um, I'll try to. Uh, in the first hour at 15 after the hour, we'll be joined, hopefully, by Albert Navarra, our regular legal consultant, uh, the author of Fundamentals of, of Constitutional Law. Uh, he wants to talk about Proposition 8 in California. We could talk a little bit about uh, gay marriage and the Constitution. Second hour, open lines. Open lines, as we speak, you're welcome to join us. 424 675 6806 is the number. Welcome aboard. 424 675 6806. Or you're welcome to email us at Fairness Radio. At gmail dot com. Maybe it's because I'm a political junkie, so to speak, or maybe it's just because it was interesting. But I have to tell you, last night was a very interesting political evening. Watching the returns for the for the Wisconsin recall, I particularly wanted to watch the lefty radio, the lefty TV shows, particularly Ed Schultz. And um, and Rachel Maddow, I just wanted to see their faces as the results came in. If Walker was winning, and he was winning, in fact, in the early in the early returns, he was up by ten. I think he was was as high as sixty. The final results, I think, were more like fifty five, maybe fifty four, fifty five. But very very, but a very very impressive victory. Um, I thought that the TV coverage for the um the anti walker people uh showed them at their worst i mean it had all of the worst stereotypes um, the very people that patrick has told me are not really representative of the union movement which is what the left you know which is what the opposition was they had this guy this real grizzly looking old guy with a gray ponytail you know sitting there you know yammering about uh, the unfairness of his Salary and that—that that, that this whole attack by Walker was taking, threatening his middle-class status, and it didn't really elicit much sympathy from me. I even think Ed Schultz was cringing um, at this, and just this kind of gimme, gimme attitude on the part of these thugs. It was just um, an awful display. I think that this election is profound, and I had always said so on several levels. Firstly, I think that – I'm hoping that this maybe doesn't put an end to, but it certainly puts a break on this idea of recalling politicians, governors particularly, uh, unless they're involved in something that is really worthy of being recalled, like malfeasance in office or criminality uh, if they're being accused of crimes then, yes, that's what the recall really is supposed to be for, not because you disagree with what a governor's policies are. Uh, You know, he was elected to serve as governor. He fulfilled exactly what he said he would would do, which was a shock to some. And the idea of having him recalled for that, uh, you know, that's – first of all, I mean, that might be more typical of a – of a parliamentary system where you can have a vote of no confidence. But that's not how we do things in America. We have set elections that take place on set dates. Okay, we're going to take a brief break. We'll be back. We'll introduce our beloved affiliate stations. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick here at Cyber Station USA Radio Network. (laughs) Radio with Chuck and Patrick uh, here at Cyber Station USA Radio Network. I'd like to welcome aboard our affiliate stations, WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, KSKQ-FM in Ashland, Oregon, and our online partners, Blog Talk Radio. Of course, our host station being Cyber Station USA Radio Network. Uh, my good friend and colleague and co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan, is actually flying today to Providence, Rhode Island, Uh, so I'm flying solo here. This is yours truly, Chuck Morse. Patrick and I will be uh, getting together in Providence tomorrow. Um, I probably will be doing the show solo then as well, but I'll have a chance to interview various people who are attending Netroots Nation, one of America's largest gathering of left-wingers. That should be fun. And on Friday, Patrick and I together will host the program from Netroots Nation, which is taking place uh, starting tomorrow in Providence, Rhode Island. I'm here in Boston, so it's only an hour's drive for me to get there. You're welcome to join the program. Come on down, 424-675-6806, like Ernie Bach used to say. Come on down, 424-675-6806. I also have the email box up here, so... If you'd like to email the program and have your email read over the airwaves, you can do that by emailing fairnessradio at gmail.com. We're expecting Albert Navarro to join us shortly. What else can we talk about today other than this earthquake of an election yesterday, the shot heard around the world? Scott Walker reelected in this special election, in this recall election, by a substantial margin. I think he got 55-45, which is a big, big uh, victory. It's not a landslide, but it's a bigger than a mandate, and it's a lot bigger than when he first ran for governor two years ago. There are several ways to look at this, um, to reiterate in the first segment, in the cyber station segment. I think it's appropriate to point out that this is a mandate. This is a referenda on recalls. We should not be recalling governors unless they're involved in malfeasance in office, unless they're involved in crimes, not because we disagree with the policies that, in fact, they ran on, which is true in this case. Um, The other issue, of course, is the motivation for the recall which was that Governor Walker uh, went, did exactly what he said he was going to do when he, was, when he ran the first time, and that is reform public unions. I believe that Governor Walker's victory is the beginning of the end for public unions in America. There should be no public unions in a free country. It is not appropriate. That doesn't mean the public employees can't get together and form an association and get together for social reasons, or or whatever, even for reasons such as um, maybe buying um, you know insurance or whatnot. But the idea of public sector employees paid by you and I, the taxpayer, getting together and electing officials and contributing to campaigns, and then once those officials are in office, guess who they're beholden to? The public union who wants more benefits, who wants to promote various ideological positions. In a sense, what that means is that you have the government advocating for itself. Because don't forget, the public unions are made up of public employees. And what are public employees? They are the government. They are working for the government. They are paid by the government. The government should not be, when someone goes into government, they should not be organized and getting involved in politics because they are politics. They're the public sector. That doesn't mean that individuals can't get involved with politics to certain degrees or even contribute to candidates. But as a group, the public employees should step aside from active politics, polit- uh, you know, politicking during their tenure as a public servant because that's what they are. Public servants, and they should serve the interests of the public, not the interests of a partisan party, not the interests of a politician. Uh, this is, uh, you know, this whole argument that uh, somehow this is an abrogation of, of their free speech. it's nonsense. People can choose to enter into a position of public trust or not, and when you do make that choice, you take on certain obligations. And one of those obligations should and ought to be that you refrain from uh, promoting candidates at the disadvantage of the rest of the private sector. It is a conflict of interest. It puts the public in a position of double jeopardy. There were reforms put in place in the 1880s, going back to the administration of the of Rutherford B Hayes, to stop the business of public employees doing deals and getting involved in politicians, that is a corruption. The whole edifice of public employees unionizing and having collective bargaining rights is a rotten phenomenon. It is corrupt. And I know that I've been talking about this for years because I've seen it for years in various radio stations I've worked at and what public unions have done to small towns, and there was no awareness of it until Scott Walker came along. And heroically stepped forth and did something about it, and now there's been a vote. Now there's been a plebiscite. So I think it's now becoming an open issue. Anyway, we're going to take a break. We'll be back hopefully with with Albert Navarro, our constitutional expert. Please stay tuned. back I assume, I don't know if Albert Navarro is there, I don't see any evidence that he is but um, I guess that uh, Lars if you're listening maybe give Albert a call um, and we'll see if we can bring him up on the program Uh, I'm trying to see, I I think that uh, Albert should be calling in but um, in case he's not calling in, I'm going to email you his uh, phone numbers I'm just calling them up right now Uh, let's see here Uh, I'm going to cut and paste a little bit and do this the old-fashioned way. And, Lars, you should be getting this momentarily. Um, This is Albert's phone numbers. Um, Please um, call him, Um, and we'll see if we can get this thing cooking here. Um, Let's see. Okay. Hello, Mr. Lars. Hello? Is this Hello, Albert? Yes, ah, sir. Ah, wonderful. Thanks so much. We're joined by Albert Navarro, the author of uh, Principles of Constitutional Law. Albert, thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, you got it. I was actually there on the line. I could hear you, but you couldn't hear me, so I just hung up on you and called you back.
2: How's that? Oh, okay, great. Thanks. I, I'm kind of flying solo today, Albert. Uh, Patrick's on his way to Netroots Nation, so you know when it comes to technical matters, I tend to be a bit ham-handed. So. That's
1: okay. uh, where, so, please, so please, please bear with me.
2: Are you uh, where, where are you? Where are you, Albert? Are you uh, planning on attending Netroots Nation, or is that not your thing?
1: Uh, what is that?
2: Netroots Nation is a national gathering of left wingers um, who, for lack of a better term, progressives <laughs> uh, who get together, and they they are people in the media. They're people who do a lot. A, a lot of them run websites and online. Last year, the keynote speaker was uh, was Howard Dean, and uh, he gave a very inflammatory speech. By the way, and I, I heard cl- clips of it where he talked about the racist right and all of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, this, no, you know, the I, usual.
1: I, I, yeah, I won't be going to that. And I, I'm a little bit strange. I'm I'm kind of apolitical, really. I I don't have a whole lot of personal opinions about things. I, I well, you know...
2: seem you seem to me to lean a little bit on the left, but that's that's fine
1: oh i'll have to i'll have to adjust
2: that <laughs> not at I all be, <laughs> be be who you are i mean we all are we all have our biases
1: um
2: albert you um wanted to talk about the um <clears throat> proposition eight uh, the california supreme judicial court or was it the court of appeals decided not to hear the uh the challenge to um to uh, proposition eight or i should say the striking down of proposition eight by the federal district court of um, the third district. Is that right?
1: That's right. Um, what happened was uh, the case started off at the federal trial court level. And mm-hmm. uh, there the, the federal trial judge invalidated proposition eight under the due process clause right. uh, because he, he felt that um there is a fundamental right to marry under the U.S. Constitution. And he, the, the, the federal trial judge, also invalidated Prop 8 under the Equal Protection Clause because he did not feel that enough evidence was, was presented to show that the government had, a, a, you know, a legitimate reason for banning same, uh, same-sex marriage. So that was appealed to the Federal Court of Appeal where a three-judge panel uh, basically agreed with the trial court and um invalidated Prop eight, but uh th- there is also an option to someone who loses at that level. They can also appeal to the en- entire uh panel of judges on the court of appeal, and that's what the losing party did here. They appealed to uh what's called well the entire panel. there's eleven judges there, and right. they they could have reviewed the case, but they decided uh, not to and so. You might say, "Well, does that mean that uh same sex couples can get married today?" And the answer is no because they put a stay on the decision they put that's like a legal time out sure. for mm-hmm. ninety days and what, what the federal court of appeal is doing basically is is letting the losing party again and giving them a chance to appeal to the u s Supreme court, and um they probably you know we all expect that they will appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, but, you know, in theory, if they don't, then 90 days from yesterday, uh, same-sex couples will be able to marry in California.
2: Now, I want to ask you, Albert, more of a technical question here, and that is when the entire Court of Appeals makes a decision not to hear a case, do they are they required to or do they generally uh, give reasons for that or they just simply say we're not going to look at this?
1: They simply say we're not going to look at this. What they do is they have a vote, and uh, what has to happen is a, a majority of the judges have to vote to review it. And if they don't get a majority of votes, they don't review it. It's that simple. And that's, and when that happens, that's all they say. They just say, look, we didn't have an, we did not reach a majority of votes to, to review this case. They don't express any opinions about the substance of a case at, at whatsoever.
2: Okay. Now, the uh, so now the situation is that the the defendants have have the ninety days to appeal this to the Supreme Court, and yep. there's no obligation on the part of the Supreme Court to take the case either, is there?
1: No, there's not. Um, the you know this is uh, uh, this is yeah. No, there's not. Uh, mm-hmm. But but you know it's becoming more and more likely. That the Supreme Court will review this case, uh, and the reason is uh, not only are, you know are we having more and more states go opposite directions on this issue of same-sex marriage. Um, right. You have a couple other cases that are creeping their way up the federal court system. Um, just uh, not too long ago, another case that we talked about on the program, you know, at least a couple times, I think, was mm-hmm. Gill G I L L versus the yep. um, United States. Gill is also challenging uh the Defense of Marriage Act, which of course, you know, basically bans uh same sex uh same sex marriage. And uh what happened in Well Gill, it bans
2: it it, it bans it on the federal level. It says that the states can decide to how they're gonna define marriage.
1: Exactly. And what happened in Gill was you had someone who was seeking social security benefits
2: mm-hmm. um
1: based on a same-sex marriage, but they could not because the Defense of Marriage Act prohibits that. And the Court of Appeal in that case recently um, invalidated the Defense of Marriage Act. And right, here in Massachusetts. Right. Yep. Uh, the uh, yeah,
2: the, uh, so the state, uh, the Court of Appeals here, the Federal Court of Appeals, has upheld a decision made by Federal Judge uh, Toro that said that uh, a gay couple has a right to to Social Security and other federal benefits.
1: Right. And so, you know, it, um, Prop 8, of course, is a state law mm-hmm. which prohibits uh, same-sex marriage. And the Defense of Marriage Act, of course, is a federal law which defines marriage as, uh, you know, one man and one woman. So, uh, But they all turn on the issue of same-sex marriage and the ultimate question of whether there is a fundamental right for same-sex care, uh, couples to marry under the Due Process Clause or whether um, they have an equal protection right to marry. And so, you know, yes, the Supreme Court can say, you know what, we don't want to review this Prop 8 case, but it's becoming more and more unlikely because it's not the only case that's being mm-hmm. appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court on this issue. You've got Prop 8, which is the Perry case. You've got appeal, mm-hmm. You have another case in Massachusetts um, involving someone seeking uh, basically a um, a burial benefit based on a same-sex marriage right. relationship. And, um, you know, they're all working their way up to the same Supreme Court, and so it's, uh, you know, I don't know how much longer the Supreme Court can wait before it really decides to open the question.
2: Okay, our guest is Albert Navarro. We're talking constitutional law. Uh, Albert is a regular contributor to the program. Albert, the Massachusetts case also stated that that because, even though it, it upholds the right, if you will, of the... Um, the gay couple to get national uh, benefits such as social security and inheritance. It does not tell other states that they have to recognize gay marriage. It simply recognizes the Massachusetts marriage on a federal level. And um, I think that the, the Defense of Marriage Act is not so much that it defines marriage. It says it says that the states have a right to define marriage and that one state can't force another state to recognize. Their definition of marriage, um, and and correct me if I'm wrong, and this is more of a constitutional aspect of this, but I believe in 2003 or around that time, the Bush administration had a law um, signed a law that was passed by Congress that upheld the Defense of Marriage Act, and basically put language out that indicates that the Supreme Court or federal courts aren't supposed to challenge. Defense of Marriage Act Uh, I'm not sure exactly what this law Is called but um, Is that something that is done Can can Congress Actually put A uh, a rider on a law Saying that this law can't be Challenged in the courts
1: It can but it won't have any legal Effect because that would violate the separation Of powers doctrine which basically says Congress makes laws but The Supreme Court is the final word On the law you know, so yeah, exactly. Um, That's what I
2: figured. I can't imagine that because I mean, what if a state decides to pass slavery? I mean, that, yeah. or, or the federal government? They can't just say, you know, this can't be reviewed by a court. I mean, of course right. they can.
1: And you know, you, you mentioned an early, uh, an interesting thing about states' rights. Um, of, of course, it's the ongoing, you know, tension between states' rights and the federal government. And um, what's interesting here with DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act. It really has two main parts. One is the part that defines marriage as a legal union between one man and one woman. Mm-hmm. And that's in, that's important because, you know, there are more than 1,000 federal laws that tie benefits to marital status. Social Security, right. health care, Medicare, you know, death benefits for veterans and so on. So the Congress is deciding, you know, that as a matter of federal law, it wants to define marriage as one man, one woman. And the the impact of that is seen, you know, largely in resources. Um, Well, well, that's what it is. I'm sorry? I mean,
2: that that was the selling point of the whole gay marriage idea when it was first hatched, basically in a boardroom at the New York Times is what I understand. And that is that it would be presented to the public as a fairness issue in that why, you know, people can't get benefits uh, who are... You know, cohabiting. People, why shouldn't they get Social Security? Why shouldn't they get hospital visitation? So that's what it comes down to. I mean, it's not so much, it, it doesn't necessarily mean, and I would think that from a constitutional standpoint, the court might look at this. It doesn't mean that the court has to redefine marriage, nor does it mean that the court has to necessarily throw out DOMA. They can recognize that some states are going to recognize gay marriage and some aren't because essentially, traditionally, the states have been responsible for regulating what constitutes a marriage. But at the same time, it can say that people who are in a gay marriage recognized by a state can get federal benefits. In other words, in a sense, the two ideas can exist concurrently, can't they?
1: Well, I'm not sure because um, in order to get all these Federal benefits, Social Security, Medicare, death benefits, and so on. Um, the The recipient of the benefit would have to be in a federally recognized same sex marriage. Okay, because right. we're, we're talking about same sex couples here. And so, if, if a same sex couple wants to enjoy one of those numerous federal benefits, which are mostly financial, yeah,
2: they're all the financial.
1: Yeah, the federal government would have to recognize, officially recognize the validity of the same-sex marriage, and it doesn't. Yeah, but but what no,
2: you know, can't the federal government recognize the validity of a same-sex marriage from Massachusetts without forcing Connecticut or or another state to also recognize uh, a, a same-sex marriage? I mean,
1: you okay. know. Right. You're absolutely right. If I can interrupt, if the federal yep. government wants to do that, that would be a new law, but absolutely Congress could say, look, if you have a valid marriage in any state of the union, same sex or opposite sex, we will recognize that as a valid marriage for the purposes of this benefit or that benefit or any any federal benefit there there is. So Congress can absolutely do that. And in yep. that way, you know, try to skirt <laughs> this uh, well, it seems like of-
2: also it's not so much skirting it. It's basically saying that the ultimate responsibility for regulating marriage remains where it's always been, which is with the states. But since a if a state decides to recognize a certain type of marriage, then, there, then that married couple is entitled to equal benefits on the federal level. In other words, I don't see a contradiction there. I mean – You know, the federal government, once once a state recognizes a marriage, then that marriage gets all the same benefits federally that any other marriage gets without necessarily imposing that on another state.
1: Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying, and it makes sense. Uh, Congress would have to do that quick, though, because that's not the law right now. And if this case goes up to the Supreme Court based on the way it is right now, what the Supreme Court's going to say is, okay, you know, federal government – you say that your your interest, your reason for passing DOMA is pr- protecting scarce government resources. Is that a sufficient reason to deny same-sex couples, uh, you know, th- that benefit? Th- that's what the Supreme Court is going to say: is, is is protecting federal money a good enough reason to deny mm-hmm. marriage to same-sex couples under under federal law? Uh, but like you say. If Congress changes the law and says, you know what, we're gonna recognize the marriage from any state and if, if the if the marriage is valid in any state, you'll get the benefit, same sex or, or not. If if right. Congress wants to do that, um then um you know, that 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 gill case is gonna have a much harder time uh mm-hmm. being upheld by well, the Well I, I don't think Congress has I don't think
2: I don't think Congress has to do that. Congress can leave DOMA just the way it is the Supreme Court can simply say that a, a marriage recognized in state number A gets federal benefits, but if it's not recognized in state number B, it doesn't. I mean, with, without interfering in the right of the states to to regulate marriage. But, Albert, of course, this opens up a whole other can of worms. Uh, and I know this is something that people who are proponents of gay marriage, they kind of want to skirt around this issue, but from a constitutional standpoint it seems to me that once the federal government recognizes alternative marriages, then anything goes. And there are already cases that are being brought there, I believe at least one, if not several, for people who are in voluntary bigamous marriages or polygamous marriages, I should say. And they're using the same argument that gay marriage advocates use. This is our marriage. We've entered into it freely as, as consensual adults. And we want, and we demand recognition by the state and all the benefits that the crew. I mean, would they not have the same argument that the gay couple has legally constitutionally
1: well this this sounds like the old domino argument or the slippery slope argument, and you know one can imagine that you will have other uh couples uh arguing that they also have a fundamental right, right to marry under the Constitution, or they also have an equal they protection do. right to marry. Yeah. And wouldn't they, uh, in a
2: free, if you're going to redefine marriage, like, for example, let's say you have a situation, I, I could name one, where this man who, I remember when the first community in America that started to give um, benefits for gay marriages, or, gay, or back then they didn't, the word gay marriage hadn't been invented yet, it was civil unions. Um, was Cambridge, Massachusetts, as you might expect. And when they recognized gay marriage in Cambridge and started to give health insurance to their to their and only for the for the commute city employees, there were people who said, like, wait a minute, I I take care of my elderly brother and I'm an employee of Cambridge and I'm paying for his health care and have been doing so for ten years. It's breaking my back. Why shouldn't I get benefits? Uh, also, we're not married. But why, sh- why should somebody who picks a guy up at a bar the next day go down to City Hall and register and get benefits, whereas I don't? And it's really an issue, and I don't mean to be crude about that, but it really comes down to an issue of, of, um, of fairness, and it comes down to an issue of discrimination. You know, there are a lot of people who are not – they can't get married under the law, but they, they definitely could make a claim for getting the benefits that – you know the the financial benefits certainly
1: that that marriage offers well okay so here here's the thing right we're 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 in that little um, saucer pan or or the sled and we're sliding down the slope and we're wondering you know if the supreme court recognizes a fundamental right of of same-sex couples to marry where does it end right who else might step forward and say hey i want to marry two people or hey right. i want to marry right. my dog right so exactly. let, let me just let me let me throw an argument out as to where there might be a step on that slope that might that might catch us from from going down some crazy direction. One one thought might be, you know, if the Supreme Court does recognize um the the right to marry for for same-sex couples, I have a feeling it might give us a little bit of context. In other words, it might not be so simple as, yeah, Opposite-sex couples can marry; therefore, so can same-sex couples. It might not be that simple. What the Supreme Court might do is look at the family structure and how it's evolved in this country. And and what you see is that there are something like 20 states, you know, that specifically by statute allow same-sex couples to adopt. Um, There are many, many other states that have statutes that allow. Uh, same-sex couples to foster children And so forth um, And then there are many other states That recognize a civil union Among same-sex couples And mm-hmm. and they don't They don't All those states don't have laws That recognize similar rights For bigamous or polygamous relationships right. And that might be The difference That might be that that step Or that break on the slope To where the Supreme Court Would not just, you know grant a constitutional right to marry for you know fill in the blank what, what are there other other things would
2: they have to or? but wouldn't they have to under equal protection under under um, the right you know you know it, our entire system of justice is based on this idea that you can't have special laws that protect one group of people and not another you know i mean the if if gay people can get a legally recognized marriage why can't somebody – like, let's say you're living with a Vietnam veteran survivor who's, who's, physically, who's physically disabled, maybe has some mental mental disabilities as well, who is dependent and who, who you take care of and who lives in your house. Why shouldn't you get marriage rights? Why shouldn't you get to have them covered by your employer, you know, health insurance? It could save you a lot of money. Why shouldn't they get inheritance? Uh, or 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 vice versa. I mean, you, you know, I this is uh, you know, maybe this is coming out of the blue, but do you remember the show Boston Legal?
1: Barely. I don't watch a whole lot of TV cuz I go to bed so early. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, it, it it was
2: a show. I mean, um, uh, the uh the, the lead character who was legal, the the actor William Shatner, he used to be on Star Trek. Oh yeah. And right and then and then the other guy was uh, this actor, what's his name Bader or Nate, whatever his name was um, you know he's a well known actor he played the the other slick lawyer and they'd have a scene at the end of the show where they'd be sitting on the back porch as lawyers smoking cigars and sipping brandy or whatever and talking about the case and and you know they had a very close relationship they were not gay but at the end of, but he the older man was beginning to lose his faculties and in the last show, in the last episode, they decided that they would get married because they felt that uh, for the older man wanted to make sure that his estate was taken care of, and he trusted only the other man to do that. And it was very ironic they actually that were challenged in court by a gay rights group that said, well, these men are not really gay. This is just... An attempt to take advantage of the case, and then in the final scene, they were on vacation, and they, they, they had a marriage ceremony that was conducted by a man that played the role of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, who was on, happened to be on vacation with them, and so he married them. But it brings up an issue: Why shouldn't they get married? Why should it just who what what business is it of the state whether people you know what people's sexual relationship is, firstly? But secondly, I mean, they had a case where they, he said, look, we love each other. We've been dear friends for our whole life. One of us wants to take care of the other as he sort of is on his way out. Why shouldn't we have those same marriage rights?
1: So it, it sounds like you're making an argument for same-sex marriage.
2: No, I'm making an argument for alternative marriage because once you open the door, you're discriminating. Why should a special right go to people because they're gay? Why shouldn't anyone who is in a situation where they have a compelling case for getting these benefits, why shouldn't they also get these benefits? If you want to call those benefits a legal relationship and use the word marriage, then fine, use the word marriage. The point is that to just for the state to get involved with saying these specific – we're going to expand the definition of conventional marriage, which goes back, of course, to the Roman times. By recognizing two men or two women as having the same equal relationship, why should they discriminate and say no to other people who have a, a, perhaps a more compelling case for, for marriage? What if you have, for example, two women, one of whom has minor children, maybe her husband passed away, maybe she's divorced, and she's living with another woman? They're not gay. They just happen to be living together. Maybe they're sisters and the other woman wants to be involved with rearing the two children. She wants to pick them up at school. She wants to be able to see them if they have to go to the hospital. Why shouldn't they have marriage rights, just like two women who are gay?
1: Well, that's a good question. <laughs> and, you know, we we focused, we focused a lot on, on the financial issue. Um, but, you know, there's also just the issue of calling yourselves married and, what does that mean what's what's the value in that um not just in terms of the relationship between the couple and society but between the couple and any children that they may have um adopted or or born what does right. it mean to say that a couple is married uh and and how important how fundamental can i use that word how fundamental sure. is that right um and so when you have states such as California, that deny that right, forget about the money, forget about the benefits, Mm -hmm. forget about why they're getting married. When you have a state that says to a same-sex couple, you can't get married, Um, you cannot legally call yourselves a married couple, the question is, does does that violate a federal constitutional right? That is the suprema cum laude question. Mm -hmm. And we just don't know. And I don't know how long the Supreme court can avoid answering that question. But those who say the same sex couples should be able to marry, um, argue loving versus Virginia, right? That That the Supreme court has already said marriage is a fundamental right. Uh, those same sex couples who say they, they, they should be able to marry, uh, well, wait a minute.
2: L- Loving versus Virginia said marriage is a fundamental right between a man and a woman
1: right. o- of That's legal right.
2: aid. It didn't exactly. say marriage, and and it a gay person is has the same right as anyone else to marry the opposite sex. I mean, it's not. It's no. it's just simply it, it ran on the basic premise that marriage is is marriage. I mean, it's between right. a man and
1: a woman you know Mr. Morris I feel like I'm in court right now and I'm and I'm on the uh, you you kind of put me on the left so okay so I'm on the left and you're on the right and you just said your honor loving versus virginia did not say that same sex couples had a fundamental exactly. right to marry it said only that opposite sex couples or more specifically that a black a man and a white woman had a fundamental right to marry exactly. if you really want to look at the facts of loving and the the gay c- couple um the same sex couple would argue look we're not trying to ask for a new kind of fundamental right to marry. We're not asking the Supreme Court to recognize the fundamental right of gays or same-sex couples to marry. Rather, Your Honor, we're simply trying to exercise that same traditional right to marry as has been recognized as every state in the union. You know what I mean? Yeah, but they are trying to to
2: ask for a redefinition (laughs) of marriage. That's exactly what they are doing. And once you're going to redefine marriage and you're going to have a state or a federal government recognize the word marriage attached to this new relationship, then it opens up the door to alternative marriages. It just does. I mean, it already has. I mean, there's already cases. Of polygamy, and why should the state have just have a? Why can't you know? Why shouldn't the state recognize that marriage? And again, I bring up the fairness issue. There are relationships that are uh, loving and that are compelling from financial levels, from business levels, from personal levels, from relationship, from from uh, blood levels, that that can't get these benefits because they're not quote married, um, and and they should, and they have more of a compelling case than some people who are gay. I mean, I guess what it comes down to is that if you're going to redefine marriage, and it shouldn't be any of the business business of the state whether people are gay or straight, and the word marriage doesn't need to apply. I mean, look, and by the way, the state's not even telling a gay couple they can't use the word marriage. They can use the word marriage all they want. It's just saying you cannot, if you're going to have the state legally use the word marriage and recognize the relationship as such, then it's going to create an entirely different, body of of situations with regard to what is a marriage and that can really mean anything i mean a man can marry his dog you know it's it's just it, i'm sorry to be blunt about that but you know if if we're going to have to redefine marriage from what marriage is and has been then it brings up from a legal standpoint i would think from a constitutional standpoint the rights of anyone to have that relationship and and, and basically Make the claim that their relationship has the same basic constitution as a gay marriage does.
1: You know, one thing that's missing, uh, I think, um, on from the camp that does not want a federal, you know, right to marry among same-sex couples, one, one thing that's missing, in my opinion, is is more evidence uh, as to why the state should not allow um, same-sex couples. But the Those who passed Prop 8 um, mm-hmm. argued, uh, and again, Prop 8 basically banned uh, same-sex marriage. Those who right. pushed for and, and, and uh, promote Prop 8 argue what are called state interests. In other words, reasons why the state should care, you know, whether same-sex couples marry or not. And you see the same interests all, you know, over and over again. I mean, there, there are only so many reasons why, why you can think of. One mm-hmm. is defending the traditional institution of marriage. Another is... Um, you know, discouraging procreation outside of a heterosexual sexual marriage. Another is um, protecting scarce government resources. We've, we've talked a lot about that. Another one is morality. Another one is, you know, protecting the best interests of children. These are the reasons you hear over and over and over from the social conservatives as to why we should not have a U.S. constitutional right of, of same sex couples to marry. That's, right. that's great. That's fine. Those, those all sound like great. You know, interest, you can argue those all day long In front of the Supreme Court The only thing that's missing, in my opinion Is evidence I haven't seen a lot of Evidence presented By those uh, People in court For example, in the Pop 8 case That we started off talking about That trial judge, that federal trial judge Said that the evidence Of the Prop 8 opponents was dwarfed He used the word dwarfed By the evidence mm-hmm. presented by the Prop eight proponents. That's not good when you go to court. You know, to, to, to right. have your evidence dwarfed by the other side. So you might say, well, what kind of evidence am I talking about? Yeah, well, you know, from <laughs> historians, from uh, yeah. economists, from people, uh, you know, experts in family and child welfare. People like Dennis Prager, William Bennett, Charles Krauthammer. You know, people on American history and family uh, studies reports. Something you need to have some. Documentary and testimonial evidence to prove those state interests that I just listed. You can't just argue them. You have to prove them with evidence.
2: Well, I think that there's one, I mean, I, I, I guess I'll be very blunt about this. I think there's one basic proof that what a marriage is and what a marriage isn't um, that could be provided in a courtroom, but it would require that a man and a woman strip down naked. <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> yeah, you know, the court might take judicial notice of that one. So, and, right. Uh, I mean, in we other were- words, a
2: marriage is a marriage, and a, and what is a marriage and what isn't a marriage is just obvious. I mean, it's just the way it goes. But I don't think that the pro 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 traditional marriage people are going about it the wrong, uh, the right way. I don't think that beyond that, I don't think they should get into a discussion of trying to prove states, you know, to prove their case that the state should only recognize traditional marriage. Instead, they should turn the tables, as I've tried to do, and say, if the state is going to recognize an alternative marriage, then it has to recognize all alternative marriages and that you can make the case, and I've mentioned several examples of cases where relationships have even more compelling a reason, and and virtually the same reasons to be married or to have a married relationship as a gay couple has. It's none of the business of the state whether people are gay or straight, whether they have sex or not. That's private. But from a from public policy standpoint, and from a legal standpoint, the state should have to make a case with regard to why marriage shouldn't be, or these marriage benefits shouldn't be extended to any group. That that can make the case that they have a, a a relationship that would justify those benefits.
1: Yeah, that's that's a very interesting thought, and I I really you know we've discussed this um, your idea before in the program, and well, that's, um, the, pro- that's really the
2: approach I would suggest that they take. Put aside the morality arguments. Those are just where they are. I mean, that's a personal opinion. I agree with them, by the way. But from we're talking about from a legal standpoint and from the standpoint of courtrooms and, and uh, legislatures. It should be that, that anyone who makes a compelling case for marriage benefits – and I've, again, mentioned several examples – why shouldn't they get those same benefits as a gay couple – what it it's discrimination i mean if we're going to have an equal law the fact is that the heterosexual marriage is grandfathered in everybody knows that and agrees with that it's been around since the roman times but if you're going to expand the definition then it has to be done equally you can't just single out this one group and because it happens to be trendy right now because we think that uh, being gay is a great thing and and that's fine you know, and that therefore their their relationship should be should be legally recognized, but someone else's shouldn't. You have to do it equally and across the board, and you have to address the genuine issues that various people who are cohabitating today have, and who are not necessarily
1: gay. You know, another thing that's sort of happening, and it's it's kind of a fuzzy thing. It, 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 you wonder if our if our society is changing. Um, um. I mean, you know, 100 years ago, no one would even dream about top, you know, a federal right of same-sex couples to marry. It, well, Albert, but, you know, yeah.
2: I don't know if – do you know who um, – and, and I don't know if, how far I want to get into this topic, but do you know who the late Ed Pollack is?
1: Ed Pollack, no.
2: Ed Pollack was the founder of Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly which was a very big newspaper and which I believe has expanded at this point into several states. It's a trade publication for lawyers. Uh, He passed away, I think, uh, maybe in 2006, 2007. I should mention in full disclosure that he was a contributor to my campaign for Congress, and I kind of knew him. I didn't know him well. He was a very unpleasant individual, but nevertheless, he he wrote a book on this topic of, of how gay marriage started. And um, he makes several, I think, rather sensational claims, but he documents it very well. He was a very well-respected lawyer and writer in the state, both on liberal and conservative side. Um, and his claim is that because you, were, you and I, we never heard of this, maybe even as early as the 1990s. It was really around the early 1990s that we started to first hear about this idea that two people of the same sex could get married and should have legal rights. He says that the whole thing was cooked up in a boardroom at the New York Times. He says that there was a board meeting in which Arthur Salzberger Jr. made a PowerPoint presentation saying, we're going to promote this thing called gay marriage, and we're going to roll it out over the next several years. And he appointed a columnist by the name of Anthony Lewis to write columns and introduce the idea slowly. In the Times over the next subsequent years, and Anthony Lewis did this. He wrote columns, maybe one, maybe once every other month, once a month, introducing gay marriage. And, and of course, we know the New York Times is influential. It was picked up by other newspapers. I've heard gay people say they never thought of this until then. You know, it just hadn't been anything. Any, it was on any radar screen. I mean, they, they might have had a commitment ceremony. They might have even wanted to have a civil ceremony. But this idea of a federally recognized or even a state-recognized gay marriage was not something that people particularly thought about. Anyways, Anthony Lewis, it just so happens, is the husband of um, of Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Judge Margaret Marshall. And Margaret Marshall... Was the judge who wrote the gay marriage decision in Massachusetts, the Woodridge decision, which became law in 2004? Did you know that?
1: I did not know that. That is fascinating.
2: Isn't that interesting? It is. So, and, so to answer you know, your question, Albert, that's how we heard of gay marriage.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. And now, you know, uh, the um, the old the, the logic student in me wants to say, well, you know. Let's not make an argument based on uh, what we call fallacy of origin You know, in other words, just mm-hmm. because something starts off one way Doesn't mean that uh, today it's not a good idea or is a good idea but, Right, right, you know, I get you, that. You, you, you wonder if, I mean, we've always had um, homosexuality in, in this country I mean, it's, it goes back well, thousands of in the world years. Yeah uh, so It goes back and, to
2: Alexander the Great I mean, it, that's that's a given
1: Exactly, as well as the sex and the cohabitation, and you know maybe it, it, it is as uh, Mr. Pollock said, um, and, and maybe that's what kick-started the legal action,
0: and maybe mm. that's
1: what prompted you know now seven states plus the District of Columbia to recognize right. same-sex marriage. What I'm just what I'm aiming at though is that you know on that 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 momentous day. Where you have the oral argument in front of the Supreme Court on this issue of whether there is a constitutional right of same sex marriage, is the Supreme Court gonna just kind of look around the country and look at the landscape and just try to get a feel for a, for the country and and make a determination that the country's just moved a little bit you know i mean it's it's hard mm-hmm. to tell on a day to day basis like a glacier melting or something but uh, when that day comes, whether it's a year from now or I don't know, five or ten years from now, you just wonder has the is the country has the country or, or will the country have moved on this social issue?
2: You know something. I think that it probably has. Even you know, regardless of how it was introduced, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's been a brilliant uh, marketing campaign, and and people are gay married. I know some people who are, and they're fine. Um, so it has become a social phenomenon regardless of who manufactured it. But I think that in the long run, and again, you know, this is looking in the future and I'm I'm not Nostradamus here, but um I, I think that it ultimately is an artificial construct. I don't think most gay people have chosen it. I think that most people a large number of people who have chosen it are not together, they've divorced or they've separated. I don't think that the gay marriage in most cases is the same as a heterosexual marriage. It's just the relationship is not the same. It's not necessarily as monogamous. It's just not the same deal. And I think that there will always be people who want to have this relationship, and that's fine. But I think in the long run, maybe 50 years from now, maybe 100 years from now, we will look back at this, or those of us who are still around, and realized that this was one of these sort of social experiments that um, it just didn't have long term organic value. You know, it didn't really make an impact on society. Um, it, it, yeah.
1: I know exactly what you're saying, Mr. Morris. And I, I you know, if, if I can sort of throw my evidentiary criticism at the same sex couple now. You could you could argue that you know what's missing from the same sex, uh, the gay and lesbian community, uh, is more evidence on their behalf. Well, they words, don't want to.
2: They don't want to do this. The psychologists, the anthropologists, uh, sociologists, they don't want to study this too closely, and they should. That's their job. I mean, is there an, is there more likely to be violence in a gay marriage relationship? We don't know that. I, I my gut feeling is that yes, there is. But we don't know that because they will not study it objectively, and that's that's an abrogation. Um, Albert Navarra, I want to thank you for joining us this afternoon. Where do people get your book?
1: Uh, Amazon.com. Albert Navarra, nice talking to you as always. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Mr. Morris. Very stimulating discussion. Always enjoy it. Good to hear your voice. Talk to you soon.
2: Great, thank you. Okay, we're going to take a brief break. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Chuck Morse flying solo today. You're welcome to join me, 424-675-6806. Open lines, 424-675-6806. Please stay tuned.
0: Why is it when i see your name it's got me all busted up butterflies in my brain and every time you call i can't seem to get it right why am i up till 2 a.m now it's quarter past three boy you did it again and i can't seem to get a cheeky smile out of my mind I feel like a fool when I lose my cool. I'm just trying to impress you, Boy, you got me sprung and I don't know what to do. Could this be love? Can't get you out of my head
2: and uh, probably doing the program live from there, maybe interviewing people. Friday, Patrick and I will do the program together and hopefully bring up people and talk about where the left is going, especially now with the Scott Walker victory. (laughs) We'll find out. It'll be interesting to see who wants to talk about that. You're welcome to join me. Come on down. This is a solo hour uh, for me. Hopefully uh, you, you would like to chime in. Express your opinion. Get off your mind. Whether, get off your chest, whatever it is on, that is on your mind, as it were. 424 is the number. 424-675-6806. I also have the email box up here in front of me. If you'd like to send an email, I'll read it over the air. And that email address is fairness radio at gmail.com FairnessRadio at gmail.com Of course, this is Cyber Station USA Radio Network. I'd like to again thank Albert Navarra. He is a regular contributor to this program. Fundamentals of Constitutional Law is the book. And uh, Albert wanted to talk and we did talk about Proposition 8 in California which was a decision made by a federal district judge in San Francisco to throw out Proposition 8, which had invalidated gay marriage, and now with the uh, full uh, Federal Court of Appeals deciding that they would not hear the case or the appeal, uh, the case will most likely go to the Supreme Court within the next 90 days, and the Supreme Court will then hear whether will then hear a case that would ask them to federalize gay marriage as opposed to uh, leaving it as a state issue I suppose it all depends also on whether or not the um, the plaintiffs, those who originally brought, or the defendants um, I guess it would be the plaintiffs because they threw out Prop 8 um, they, uh, whether or not they want this to go to the Supreme Court and I would think that they probably do so this will be tested on the federal level. Scott Walker, I can't get enough of this. You know, Scott Walker has kahanas. I mean, he really stepped in. One of the things that he said last night in his acceptance speech, as he was reelected and as the the recall movement imploded on itself, and that was a delicious thing to watch. Was that? Um, and, and by the way, I disagreed with with Governor Walker on this statement. He said that he felt that after having been a a county supervisor for many, many years and having observed many governors, successive governors of his state, of Wisconsin, uh, hold office and, and how ineffective they were and how they just didn't get anything done, he felt that he wanted to run for governor because he would get something done. He would go after this ever-increasing and entrenched power of the public unions and a stranglehold on the state, and that he felt that perhaps he acted a little too rashly, a little too quickly, and that maybe in retrospect he might have done it a little bit more carefully. I don't think that, that he should see it that way. You know, I understand what he means, but don't we want our leaders to act decisively? isn't the big complaint right now with regard to Barack Obama and the Republican uh, House House of Representatives that that they're in deadlock, that they're not doing anything, that they're not acting on anything? He went in there and he assumed that he was elected to act. He presented a bill of particulars when he ran. And then when he was elected, he did it. Why is that something that we should – not view as as a great and honorable uh, set of of activities. I mean, isn't that why we elect people to office, to represent us? If someone is is running for office and they say, I'm going to do A, B, and C, don't we want that? Isn't that what Scott Walker said he would do and did? I think that he is an unusual and honorable person. He went in there and he did the job that he stated that he would do. And for that, his enemies tried to have him thrown out of office. That is not the American way. If they don't like what he was doing, then, they, then uh, the, the conventional and the constitutional approach is to oppose him on the uh, state legislative level or vote him out of office after he has served his terms. Or four years Not try to have him thrown out Anyway They did not succeed And I think that it's a blow to This whole phenomenon of recalling people from office Something that I heard left-wingers Discuss over this past year Is a great idea Anytime they disagree with somebody They'll just recall them Ain't going to happen Scott Walker has put that to bed That is not the way forward In this country We're not going to have People recalled from office every time they do something that's unpopular. They will be recalled in the way, the conventional manner, if, in fact, they've done something that's inappropriate, and that will be by losing the next election. They'll be retired by the voters at the right time and in the right place, not in the middle of a term, not by a bunch of people who just don't like their public policies. Anyway, we should take a brief break. Welcome in our listeners again you're listening to Fairness Radio come on down
0: 424675 <laughs>
2: You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick This is yours truly, Chuck Morse Flying solo today Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan is my co-host from Los Angeles Is traveling actually to Providence, Rhode Island Where Patrick and I shall get together tomorrow I'm looking forward to that And we will be attending the the Netroots Nation convention Once a year the left-wingers get together and have this convention Talk about where leftism is, where it's going uh, Friday, I'll be doing the program probably solo from that convention with guests, basically um, people uh, hopefully who will come up and say hello on the air. We shall see. On Friday, Patrick and I will be together at NetRoots doing the program, which uh, should be great fun. I'm looking forward to that. You're welcome to, uh, should welcome aboard our affiliate stations, WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida. KSKQ FM in Ashland, Oregon. Of course, our online partners, Blog Talk Radio, and uh, our host station, Cyber Station USA Radio Network. Come on down, you're welcome to join me. 424 675 6806. That number again is 424 675 6806. And of course, our email address, fairnessradio at gmail.com. FairnessRadio at gmail.com. For our regular listeners, this is your chance to take me on one-on-one. I, I know we've been doing, Patrick and I have been doing this broadcast now for a couple of years. And in the course of that time, we've done a lot of controversial programs, had, have had many controversial guests on. And um, there's probably things that I've said that you might want to um, to take me on about. Here's your chance. FairnessRadio at gmail.com. Or you can call me at, and get on the air, 424-675-6806, 424-675-6806. Of course we're talking about the election yesterday. What else to talk about? Scott Walker had a resounding victory in the recount. I just love the way that sounds. I I was really biting my nails over this. It it, it is an election that has a profound impact on on the history of how – on the future of how we govern ourselves in this country. Are we going to allow our government itself to organize and advocate for itself and elect people to advocate for it? Or are we the people going to take back our government and make sure that our elected officials and our appointed officials and our public sector employees – our public servants, are there to serve us. We take care of them very well. Our public employees are compensated quite nicely. These are good jobs. These are not sweatshop jobs. In exchange, we expect them to focus on serving the interests of the public, not organizing and getting more benefits for themselves on taxpayer expense. That is a corruption it is one that should stop. I was saying this years ago when I was a radio talk show host in the city of, of um, Fitchburg, Massachusetts, um, and I happened to be there during an election. It came to my attention that, that that relatively poor city, a city that was in economic distress, a city where businesses were fleeing and where the tax base was shrinking, That that city had no less than 14 public unions, all of which had their own contracts, all of which had collective bargaining rights, all of which were treating the city like it was Beverly Hills, and that those unions were strangling the life out of that city. But the problem was that because they had reached such a point of critical mass, and because there were so many people – in that city, who were either members of those unions or who were close relatives or friends of members of those unions, they had enough political clout to elect their own people to office. And therefore, they controlled the city, and they squeezed out the taxpayer, the the private sector element. Businesses were closing. The city had a deficit there were threats from the state to take over and put the city in a receivership. And the, meanwhile, those contracts were were these fat contracts with benefits, were way above and beyond anything the city could control, and the or could afford. And of course, the other element is that um, these many of these unions, particularly the teachers' union, was very political and very into various pet political and social ideas that they were imposing as part of their contract and that they were promoting and there was nothing that the citizen could do about it because it didn't really even matter who was mayor or who was elected. Those contracts were for a set period of time and they couldn't be changed. And um, it was at that point that I really started to notice that the public unions were strangling not only the, the communities from a cost standpoint, from, a, from an economic standpoint, but they were transferring the ability of the citizens of that community to decide how they were to be governed. They were transferring power to themselves, and they were supposed to be servants of the public, not controllers. They were becoming a ruling elite. Another example around that time was the city of Quincy which, of course, is where Cyber Station USA offices are, they had a uh, teacher strike because the mayor of Quincy, Mayor Whalen, asked the teachers' union to pay, instead of $3 copay, instead of a $3 copay when they went to the doctors, he asked them to raise it to, I think it was $5 or maybe $10, but something that was entirely affordable and very much still less than what average people would pay as a copay. And rather than accept this, this the uh, teachers union in Quincy decides to go on strike. And they went on strike two weeks before the end of the school year, which meant that the children of Quincy, their, their year was cut short. But the irony to this was that there were so many public sector employees in the city of Quincy, and so many people who were dependent on a public paycheck, and and those people had so many friends that they were able to prevail. And they actually, to, to, to use an Orwellian um, twist to the entire debate, they went out with signs saying, we're standing for the children, right? You know, this being the group that cut the year off, they're standing for the children right against this cruel mayor who wanted to who who was presiding over a city that's almost bankrupt and who wanted to simply ask them to pitch in a little bit more so the city could maybe save a little bit no no they were the ones who were championing the children what this comes down to is that there has been a major shift in this country over the past Maybe 20, 30 years. In terms of a division between the taxpayers and the tax consumers. And the tax consumers are increasing in numbers. They're increasing in influence. They're increasing in power. They're increasing in wealth. And they're sucking dry everyone else. Anyway, we're going to take a brief break. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. You're welcome to join me. Four two four six seven five six eight zero six. Four two four six seven five two eight zero six or fairnessradio at gmail.com
0: You know that feeling when you sit in the sun and everything tingles and every time I sing this song makes me smile for endless days I go round and round and round like a merry-go-for-fun forever how it makes me happy cause it's a so beautiful
2: Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. You're welcome to join us at 424-675-6806. That number again, 424-675-6806. I'm starting to get my energy back here. I can feel it. Radio at gmail.com. If you'd like to email me, Chuck Morse, come on down. Radio at gmail.com. I was up pretty late watching that show, so I might sound a little low energy here. I apologize for that. Also, I'm having a lot of allergies, so I'm just uh, my eyes are watery and it's just a mess. That's that's part of what happens to me every year around this time when when the flower, when the when the trees start to blossom. Uh, but uh, you're welcome to join me again, Chuck Morse at Fair at uh, Fairness Radio. Patrick O'Heffernan is is out today. Um, he's on his way to, to uh, the Netroots Nation. Um, We were talking in the first hour about uh, Prop 8 and how that's going to the Supreme Court, which means that the federal Supreme Court most likely will look at whether or not gay marriage will be recognized on a national level. Certainly welcome to weigh in on that. And um, we're talking in this hour, of course, about Scott Walker's great victory, a significant victory and what that means. Uh, what that means is that Scott Walker has successfully taken on the public unions. And again, this is an issue I was talking about years ago. People didn't know what it was all about. I remember talking about it with Patrick on the air, and I, I predicted in 2009 that this would become the biggest issue of the next years, and did. Patrick had never heard of it, uh, but um, you know, I just I've studied this. I've I've, I've done broadcasting in communities where this is a problem, as I mentioned. Every governor, every mayor who has to deal with a public union in this country is breathing a sigh of relief today. Even if they came out publicly against Scott Walker because of partisan reasons, because Scott Walker happens to be a Republican. And by the way, he could have just as easily been a Democrat because Democrat governors are dealing with the same problem. Um, they know that now that he won, now that he prevailed, they can take on public unions in their communities, and they too can win and will win. I would suggest that over time public unions be removed from the public square. We should not have public unions. That sounded like a radical statement on my part when I said this years ago. No, it longer does it. It's not not a radical statement at all. Now, in fact, uh, I put in a chapter in my book, a Whig manifesto, which was published a couple of months ago, on this very issue, on the issue of public unions and and Scott Walker and what he was facing, and my liberal publisher was so offended by it that he said that he would not publish the book unless I took it out, and I had to, and I did. And now I'm looking at him and saying, guess what? I was right. This is not some fringe issue. This was an issue that carried the day in a significant state, with Scott Walker being reelected, I think, at a pretty good margin. People are aware of this problem. This isn't a left-right issue. Well, it is in that the left is more oriented toward public sector control. But – in a practical sense, this is a good government issue. It is an issue that every state is confronting that has public unions. In fact, Massachusetts, the Massachusetts House of Representatives, which is as left-wing a body as any you'd find outside of Pyongyang, that being in North Korea, they voted recently and unanimously to end collective bargaining rights for public sector unions. This is Massachusetts. So I wonder if we're going to see now that Scott Walker has won. We're going to see in the coming months an increase in boldness on the part of the people that we elect to represent us when it comes time for them to take on these public unions and put them in their place. Now, again, public employees have good jobs. We want to pay them well, especially teachers. That's not the issue. This isn't an attack on them. This is simply saying that they're making a lot more than we are in the private sector for comparable jobs and that we want accountability for good teachers who we'd like to pay more and take care of more and bad teachers of whom we'd like to get rid of. But can't because of these corrupt public unions. I'll give you two examples. In Wisconsin, two reforms that uh, that Scott Walker put forth that set off this rage and this hatred, that uh, the, the ugliness of which I hadn't seen since the days of Ronald Reagan, including you know people throwing garbage at his two sons as they tried to make their way to high school. You know the abuse that he's had to put up with—people spitting at him and throwing crap at him. I'll, you know, I'll tell you two examples of, of something that Scott Walker did. The first was one that one would ostensibly assume uh, would be appropriate in a free society, and that is that he uh, got a law passed—and and it and one that was passed through his legislature, which is Republican—that said that. Membership in a public union was voluntary. You didn't have to join a public union when you became a public employee. I mean, after all, why should you be forced to join a union and pay dues as a public employee if you don't want to, right? Well, once that law was passed, I believe – I don't have the exact statistic, but I think it was about 35% – of the largest public sector union in Wisconsin, asks AFSCME, they left the union. And they were able to, as such, get a raise because they could then keep the dues that they had to pay that corrupt union every month. And it was a good thing for them and their families. Do you think the union did anything to offer them a service? You know, this actually is going... I mean, if we're going to have to have public unions... And again, I advocate they be abolished, but given the fact that they exist, this is going to force the public union to be better if they want members. They're going to have to actually offer people something other than just sucking dues out of their pockets every month or every other week. They're going to have to offer services, right? The second reform that Scott Walker enacted that I I can point to particularly is that apparently, and this is an example of other sort of shady deals that public unions salt into their contracts from time to time. I'm not pointing a finger at all of them here. But apparently there was a little deal that was worked out in the state of Wisconsin that required that all municipalities in Wisconsin purchase health insurance for their employees ...from a, uh, a, a uh, an insurance company that was run by the public unions. In other words, it was an in-house insurance company. And that this insurance company, once they had this legal monopoly, they were charging exorbitant fees. And those fees were being paid by municipalities, by cities and towns. And they were making a ton of money on this. Money that they would then shovel into more political campaigns to help elect more people to protect them. Well, Scott Walker did away with that. He said, you know, the municipality has a right to choose whichever health insurance company they want to uh, insure their employees. And one of the reasons Scott Walker knew about this was because before he was governor, he was an administrator of a county. And he was confronted with these expenses and knew that this was corrupt. Well, what happened in response was that the public sector union uh, insurance company lowered their rates dramatically because they knew that if they didn't do that, the municipalities would leave in droves. So they were able to keep, assumedly, most of the municipalities, once they had the voluntary right to leave, but it ended up saving tens of millions of dollars. In cost on the part of communities like Milwaukee and Madison and other other uh, Wisconsin cities and towns, money that would otherwise, instead of handing it over to this corrupt union organization, now that's money that could be used for things like um, improving the community. You know, building up maybe putting a, a new jungle gym in the park or putting on a concert or maybe even heaven Fend giving a tax rebate to, uh, to the residents of their community. In other words, it wasn't a strain. The, the cities and towns of Wisconsin have saved tens of millions of dollars from this one move on the part of Governor Walker. So these are the kinds of reforms that Scott Walker engaged in. And this is why Scott Walker won. You know, when people are in the privacy of the voting booth, they do what they think is right doesn't matter if they're a bunch of thick necked thugs, union thugs standing around outside. They're gonna they don't shouldn't talk to those people. They go in and vote. And they did. And now the unions are on their backsides in that state. And this is a very, very promising development. You know, we've heard all this nonsense about disenfranchising voters because of um, and Scott Walker I think also wanted voter ID laws you know this kind of talk and this kind of you know yammering about big corporations and the Koch brothers and by the way Patrick sent me the film of the Koch brothers and I watched that film and the only thing that they really could say about the Koch brothers that was bad is hold it get ready they're conservatives Oh Which by the way Is what makes them exceptional You know They're in the oil business So they're polluting Oh guess what All I mean Every oil company pollutes To a certain degree They're no They're no bigger Or no smaller Polluter than anyone else in case people haven't noticed Oil is a dirty business so should we stop them Do you think that it would be good If you had a communist country Do you think they run Their oil fields any cleaner <laughs> Take a look at, at The former Soviet Union You want to see environmental disasters. The point is that the Koch brothers are honorable men, great businessmen. They're heroes, and that they contributed a lot of money to help help Scott Walker. So did a lot of average people across the country. And so the left is saying, well, look at the uh, Scott Walker people had eight times as much money. Yeah, they did. That's good. Why do you think the left didn't have that kind of money? I think the answer is quite self-evident. It's not because left wingers are, 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 are paupers, hardly. It's because even left wingers, the left-wing millionaires and billionaires, you know, the one, the top one percenters, they're not going to throw good money after bad. They knew this was a losing cause. You know, they gave more money to Barack Obama in 2008 than any president in history and they're not doing it this time around because they think he's going to lose. Same thing with the Scott Walker thing. They didn't like the way the whole thing looked and so they didn't contribute. Even though I think the State Democratic Party or the Federal Democrat the Democratic Governors Association came up with a million dollars. But nevertheless, they're not going to you know shoot off their money on a losing cause. That's why they didn't have the kind of money Scott Walker had. Scott Walker had the money because people supported him, and thank God they did. Anyway, we're going to take a brief break. You're welcome to join me, Chuck Morse, in the final segment on these or any other topics. 424-675-6806 is the number. 424-675-6806. Or you can email me at fairnessradio at gmail.com. Please stay tuned.
0: Everything tingles And every time I sing this song Makes me smile for endless days I go round and round and round Like a merry go for fun forever How it makes me happy And we
2: are back. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Chuck Morse uh, flying alone today. Patrick O'Heffernan is on his way to Netroots Nation. And, of course, uh, I'll be down there with him tomorrow. He may pop in. I don't know. But I'll be doing the show from there live. Friday, Patrick and I will be reunited on the air at Netroots Nation. You're welcome to join me for the final segment at 424-675-6806. That number again, 424-675-6806, and of course you can email the program, and I'll read your email over the air, at, uh, at FairnessRadio at gmail.com. Uh I should mention that, uh, of course, uh, our host, Cyber Station USA Radio Network, and Barton Publishing is our, is our sponsor. Uh, Barton Publishing is uh, Joe Barton, who's the occasional guest in the program offers um, these manuals for health that uh, deal with different maladies that one may have. In my case, Joe Barton came to my attention because I was suffering from acid reflux that was affecting my voice. And, uh, you know, when you do things like talk radio and when you talk on the phone a lot like I do, you want to have a strong voice. Um, and the situation was just getting worse. I didn't know what was going on. Eventually, I was diagnosed with um, acid reflux over at Mass General Hospital, which is a great institution. Uh, they said that I had what was called actor's reflux, which is to say that actors or politicians, people who who, who use their voices dramatically, sometimes it, it pulls acid out of the stomach and it irritates the throat. And it's a very dangerous condition. It leads to cancer. Uh, and they put me on a drug to help uh, the, with a the problem. I took the drug for probably a, the better part of a year, and it didn't. Re- it helped. It helped, but it didn't. You know, it just it kind of helped me manage it, but it, I didn't feel good from the drug. And upon further research, I discovered that this drug had some rather unpleasant side effects, including a sort of a, a hardening of the bones and, and all these other things. And so in despair one day, I was looking at Newsmax.com, which is a source of news for me, and I saw that Joe Barton ran a a banner ad on that paper. I read the ad, and I ordered the product. It cost $20. It was a booklet on how to uh, handle acid reflux naturally. Joe tells a very compelling story of how his father solved his acid reflux problem, and his father had a very serious problem. he was surgery for it, and he was in a lot of pain and he virtually cured himself by simply using certain foods and These are not exotic foods. this is not you know expensive macrobiotic food or it's not exotic Chinese herbs that one would get at a pharmacy in Chinatown. you know these were just conventional foods that you bought by at your local supermarket. One of the foods I can mention, because it's not proprietary, that is the good old-fashioned apple. I happen to prefer Macintosh apples, and I, you just eat an apple a day, or you eat an apple whenever you have a, a reflux problem, and it works. It manages the reflux. It absorbs the acid. I don't know why, but it does. And so between the apple and a couple of other um Suggestions that Joe Barton made in his booklet. I have been able to manage my acid reflux. It doesn't cure it, but I'm managing it, and I've done it without any drugs. I totally stopped the drug, so I feel 100% better. I don't have the side effects that a very that a rather toxic drug has. And Joe Barton has other other modalities that you might want to look at. Uh, he has books about anything from uh, cessation of smoking to, uh, to cancer treatment. And again, these are not cures. They are simple, practical suggestions that help you get better, that help you reduce the problem naturally. And if you want to take a look at Joe Barton's excellent booklets, go to FairnessRadio.com, click on the banner for Joe Barton. I believe the ad is a little, you'll scroll down a bit. And you'll see our ad for Barton Publishing. And if you decide to purchase one of these products, uh, put in the word fairness into the, um, you, you know, where it says, do you have a special coupon code or whatever, and you will get a 50% discount. So if the booklet costs $20, it'll only cost you 10 If it costs $15, it'll only cost you seven fifty. So it's a good deal. Check it out, Barton Publishing, on Patrick's and my website, which is uh, FairnessRadio.com. This is Chuck Morse. You're welcome to join the conversation, 424-675-6806. That number again is 424-675-6806. Or you can email me at FairnessRadio at gmail.com. That's FairnessRadio at gmail.com we're talking about Scott Walker. Uh the attack against him is the same attack that I've heard against anyone who poses as any sort of a threat to Barack Obama um since he was elected and that is that those who are attacking him so called they're 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 rich. They got money and that they are corporations. Um, first of all, the whole idea is absolutely ridiculous because Barack Obama has more corp- had more corporate support than any president presidential candidate in U.S. history, and that the only reason he's not getting it now is because they don't think he's going to win. But in a more fundamental sense, this was an attack on private ownership. It was an attack on capitalism it was an attack on freedom and i think that that is not resonating with average americans they don't like it uh it's not it's it, the more the left does this i think the more they're hurt by it people don't hate successful corporations they don't hate rich people they admire them they'd like to be more like them and they would like a society and a system, if you will, that fosters success, that helps more people become members of the liberal elite one percenters. Not an attack on that. You know, this goes to a, a Marxist view of, of capital, anyways, which is that capital is a finite commodity that can only be distributed to so many people when in fact the, the the more conservative view and the more accurate view is that capitalism is not finite, capital is infinite. Capital there's as much money in the world as there are people who are creating things. It's as, it's as it's as broad and as vast as the human imagination. And the more we have a society that allows for people to create things and that fosters that and that encourages development in in uh, in human uh, ingenuity and success and creativity and investment then the more capital we'll have real capital and that's why this country has more capital than any society in history because we're freer because we have more people who create stuff we have a government that fosters such creation so capital is not finite. If a guy down the street has more money than you do, it's not because he's taking something away from you. The guy down the street has more money because he created it. Either that, or he inherited it, which of course is part of the system. I mean, you could go the John Kerry route and inherit the the, the, the uh, fortune of your second wife's first husband's trust fund. That's just the way it goes. That's the cost of freedom. Is it fair? <laughs> I don't – probably not, but that's that's the price we pay for freedom. We can't control that. You know, we want to have a government that fosters opportunity for more people to become more successful, not a government that attacks success. This whole attack on Mitt Romney is backfiring. Mitt Romney is a great success. Both as a private sector businessman And as a governor And Barack Obama Cannot hold a candle to that He's not going to get away with attacking that And that was the whole attack Against Scott Walker And and money that he's raising too It's not going to fly For the left because the American people Admire success They admire success Because they understand That success fosters Success the more successful people you have, the more successful people you're going to have. The more capital that resides in the hands of private citizens, the more capital is going to be created. I'll give you another example. I mean, I was watching 60 Minutes the other night. There's this, billi- there's this businessman. He's a billionaire. I think he's Russian, a Russian national. Uh, his name is Monk or Muck who started a business in in uh, Los Angeles, I think Patrick has talked about this, where he created a car, the Tesla. Now he's investing in space travel, and he's got rockets that can take payloads out into space. His goal is to eventually create an industry, a company, that will fly people to the moon and back. And... He is now in a position, because he's done this successfully, where he is picking up the slack of NASA, which has been on his back because there's no more investment there and there's no more energy to it. In other words, the entire edifice of NASA because, it is going private. We're going to have private companies creating space travel. Uh, that's the future, and I believe it is. Uh, It's just an example of where if we have a government that promotes ingenuity and investment, we're going to see the kinds of successes that we can only imagine, and we're going to solve problems on Earth, problems of the environment. You know, this whole business of this upcoming catastrophe, the left is very into this idea of Doom and gloom, and that the world is burning. Chicken little, chicken little, the sky is falling, right? And they talk about global warming. Well, what is their solution? Their solution is to have a conference that's going on right now as we speak in Rio de Janeiro. It's a reconvening of the original Rio conference, which was of which Al Gore was a major participant back in the 90s. That seeks to create an international EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, that's going to force the nations of the world to adhere to international standards of the environment. Is that going to actually improve the environment? Is that going to improve global warming? No. They're going to still let communist China and third world countries dump as much carbon into the atmosphere as they can. It's just going to hurt the rich countries. The successful countries, countries like ours. I would argue that the better paradigm for solving such real issues as global warming, and it is a real issue. I think you can make the case that there's too much carbon dioxide in the in the atmosphere. Um, is to invest in businesses and and to help businesses. Develop things like hybrid cars and uh, and whatnot. I mean, you know, help. I'm not against uh, solar energy and wind power. Develop those things. Do it intelligently, not throw money at some hack organization like Solyndra, but do it in a way that allows for these energy modalities to emerge. And at the same time develop domestic energy. This country, working with Mexico and Canada, should be energy sufficient if we put our minds to it within the next 10 years. We don't need to borrow, take oil from the Arab countries. We have to have the will to do these things. And in order to do it, we have to be pro-business. And that's what I think... The left is 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 failing to understand. After all this time, this is why they lost the election in Wisconsin. This is why they lost the midterm election, and why 65 Tea Party members uh, were elected, and why Congress is now Republican. And this is even this is why they even lost some small special elections, like for example Anthony Weiner's seat, one of the most liberal congressional seats districts in America went to a Republican last time, we might remember. And this is why I think Barack Obama is gonna lose in November. And I think that he is probably gonna lose by a substantial figure. Because Mitt Romney is pro business. Mitt Romney is not some highfalutin, you know, rasly dazzle kind of a guy that, that's gonna come in and excite everyone and People are going to be there fainting and goose-stepping around like Barack Obama had going. He's normal. He's a regular powerhouse. I've met Mitt Romney many times. I can attest to this. He's a good man, and he's going to be pro-business. And that is why Mitt Romney will win a landslide election this November. And that is why I think the Senate is going to go Republican. And the House is going to increase their Republican numbers, and we're going to have more Republican governors, great governors, the ones, especially the ones that have been under attack, like Scott Walker and Governor Scott of Florida. They're not going to be, they're, what they're doing is not unpopular. What they're doing is what they said they would do, what they were elected to do. This is something that the left doesn't understand. Their whole rhetoric about the evils of success is not going to fly. People understand that success is good and that success breeds more success. And this propaganda that things like voter ID is going to disenfranchise black people from voting, everyone knows that is a complete lie. Black people vote just like white people. They're just like you and me. <laughs> the left doesn't understand that because they're all lily white types living in these ivory tower suburban rich left wing communities that don't allow black people like towns like uh you know dover and 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 uh, Lincoln and some of these other left wing towns. They don't realize that black people they vote and they you know, they have licenses, and they drive cars, and they have jobs just like everyone else. And that the the idea that somehow they're going to be disenfranchised by a uh, by a simple voter ID where the state pays for this, it doesn't charge you anything, they take a picture when you come in to vote, it's a ludicrous. What they're afraid of is that they're not going to pull off the voter fraud that they're used to pulling off. And that now that ACORN has been exposed, they don't know what else to do. So they're going to make this an issue, which serves a dual purpose of continuing their voter fraud and attempting to smear their opponents as racist. Well, they're the racists. They have this white man's burden patronizing Darwinian view of black people, like that they're children and they need to be treated like that. And I think that's becoming more and more apparent, this ridiculous an obnoxious attack uh, on on a simple concept. My co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan, mentioned to me that Florida was seeking to purge 175,000 people from their voter rolls. Yes, they are. But, I mean, obviously, and I mentioned, probably at least two-thirds of those names are of people who have either died or have left the state. And that's documentable. Every state has records of how many people die every year, how many people leave the state every year. But somehow their names continue on the voter rolls, which is an opportunity for fraud. Someone can go in and say, you know, represent themselves as someone that they know has left the state. And if people don't think that happens, they're nuts. Of course it happens. I think that if you took that 175,000 people, that are on the voter rolls in Florida who have been questioned, and you remove those who have died and those who have left the state, you probably would be left with maybe 10,000, right, at most. Now, of that 10,000, how many of them are illegally registered to vote? How many of them are either, um, you know, illegal aliens or they've registered twice, as in like uh one state where they reside and one state where they're going to college. I think probably pro- at least uh, 80% of them. So now we're down to 2000. Now, of that 2000, you might say how many of them are minorities? Probably if you take a look at the average population, maybe 10% So of that 2,000, you have 200 people who are minorities. Now, and of that 200, how many of them should not be taken off the voter rolls? Maybe um, a handful, maybe about 30, maybe 50. The point is that we don't want to point to anecdotal evidence of individuals who have wrongfully been taken off the voter rolls as a way to say that a state cannot make sure that they manage their, vote, their voter lists. This shouldn't be too difficult. This isn't brain surgery. This is simple. You know, it's the same thing with illegal aliens. I think Patrick and I actually came to an agreement that this idea of um, checking people's uh, immigration status when they apply for a job is a great way to end the problem or seriously reduce the problem of illegal aliens because if an illegal alien can't get a job due to their status, then they're not going to stay. They'll probably go back to their home country. In fact, this has already happened in Alabama where they tightened up laws, not against the illegal aliens, but simply passive laws that made sure that people were... Not identified, you know, as in stopped in their car, you know, your papers please kind of thing, but in a much more passive sense in that if they applied for a job or they applied for a bank account or they applied for any other activity that most people do, they would have their citizen status uh, looked into. And this resulted in a huge exodus from from the state of Alabama of illegal aliens without necessarily having the state take active action on on this issue. So these are the ideas that Mitt Romney is suggesting. They're the ideas that have worked. They are humane. It's not like they're going after people and asking them to see their papers. It's simply putting in policies for everybody you know, that basically discourage Uh, illegal aliens. But I can tell you right now, Mitt Romney will be called anti-immigrant and and this sort of rhetoric. And I don't think that's going to fly. I don't think it's going to make it this year. They're not going to get away with it. And my proof on that is the election in Wisconsin, because that is the exact kind of crap that was thrown at Scott Walker and it didn't work. People just didn't buy it. And those who were into it looked mean and disingenuous. Even even um Ed Schultz, the left-wing talk show host, looked incredulous when he was interviewing some of these people. It just it, it just ain't going to make it this year. We're not going to have it. This is going to be a year where the American people reckon with their own future. They're going to reckon with their own identity. I've said many times that I think that the the Democratic Party is going to become a Tea Party, just like the Republican Party is. And I think that's what's going to happen. When they are routed this November, when Barack Obama goes down to an ignominious defeat, and he returns to a well-deserved retirement and i hope him i wish him well and i wish him and his family the best uh and when the congress goes republican there's going to be a re uh, a reckoning if you will within the democratic party and they're going to take a hard look at some of these old and regressive left-wing ideas that go back to marx and Weishaupt. Anyway, that wraps things up for today. I want to thank everyone for listening. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Check out our website, FairnessRadio.com. Check out my blog site, A Wig Manifesto at Blogspot.com. I shall return, God willing, tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you're listening to CyberStation USA Radio Network, thank tuned for Mike Siegel. Have a good afternoon, everybody.